You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. The replacements formed in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1979 by Paul Westerberg, Bob Stinson, Tommy Stinson, and Chris Mars. They released their first four records on local indie label Twin Tone Records, including Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, Stink, Hoot Nanny, and Let It Be. In 1985, they signed to Sire Records and released their first major label album, Tim. Following the release of Tim, they parted ways with guitarist Bob Stinson, as well as their longtime manager Peter Jesperson. In 1986, they entered Ardent Studios in Memphis to begin recording as a trio. Those recordings ultimately became Pleased to Meet Me, released in 1987. In this episode, Bob Mayer, author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, and Luther Dickinson, son of the late producer Jim Dickinson, reflect on how Pleased to Meet Me came together. Additionally, we'll hear from Paul Westerberg himself in a 1987 Warner Brothers interview with Julie Pane Bianco. This is The Making of Pleased to Meet Me. Hi, this is Paul Westenberg of The Replacements. And, uh, how you doing? <laughs> Pleased to meet me, our new record, yeah? Nine months ago, when we were, we got rid of Bob, we were thinking of breaking up the band. Got rid of Bob Stinson, we were thinking of breaking up the band, and, uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll form my own band, and then I'll need a bass player and a drummer. Well, who am I going to ask? I'll ask, you know, the best bass player and drummer that I know, Chris and Tommy. And it's like it made no sense. So we, you know, that was like one afternoon, I think, that we thought we would disband because we were, we were very bored with not playing. We had played for seven years, and we uh, all of a sudden stopped playing because I broke my finger in New York one night and because of Bob's drifting away from the group. And, you know, we were, we were afraid for a while, and we didn't know what to do. It's sort of like when you stop for a while and you sit back and you look at what you're doing, it makes you think like, you know, is this what I want to do with my life? You know, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. You travel around and you play your little guitar and people yell at you and then you go and do it again. And it's like you get used to sitting at home and seeing how, you know, regular people go to work and come home. And, and then after being home for nine months, you realize that, If you don't do this, you'll go absolutely crazy. This is Bob Mayer, author of Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. I'm also the co-producer on a series of replacements reissues, including Please to Meet Me, the Deluxe Edition. 
I think with the replacements, they were always <laughs> on the verge of spontaneously combusting probably throughout most of their career. But certainly with Bob being out of the band, with Paul having essentially threatened to quit rather than fire him, with Tommy and Chris sort of making the tough decision of which way to go and ultimately deciding to sort of forge ahead with Paul and with the band. You know, they had a lot invested in this band, both in terms of their personal lives. I mean, Tommy had never done anything. He dropped out of school. They were all dropouts, essentially. Paul had been a janitor before the band. I mean, you know, they understood the opportunity they had. And I think they also understood the power they had as a group, even as a three-piece without Bob, that they had a chemistry that was unique and rare amongst rock and roll bands. And it would have been foolish to sort of just walk away from that. And as it happened, things worked out well enough with Jim Dickinson as a producer and at Arden and in Memphis that the band decided to forge ahead and, and really start making Please to Meet Me in earnest. I am Luther Dickinson, son of Jim Dickinson, the producer of many records, including The Replacements, Pleased to Meet Me. I was here to talk about our family's contribution to the Pleased to Meet Me project. You know, as they said, they came down to Memphis to break up. They were already a three-piece down from four. They had been sending in demos to the record label of songs that, you know, were, were like droppers, quote-unquote, like, oh, they're going to hate these songs so bad that they're going to drop us. We'll never get, make this record, you know? So they weren't even sending in their best songs. These songs were called like Distortion Lake and Beer for Breakfast, you know, some hilarious songs, but not, you know, not the anthems of Bastard of Young and Left of the Dial. <laughs> and uh, so they came down to Dad and uh, started recording these. And then they were also getting wasted and recording covers and switching instruments like dad would play guitar they did route 66 and tossing it turning and just jamming and having fun but it sounded good and it felt good and it turned around to where they started going for it and bringing in some really serious songs going down to memphis was uh it was the coolest thing we ever did it's fun because we we knew we wanted to record somewhere else we actually uh we recorded first in minneapolis at blackberry way we did some demo stuff. We were planning on recording here. And after um, cutting a few things, we thought that it would be good for us to uh, try it somewhere else where we wouldn't have the distractions of being at home where you can go home at night. And it, it's much better. I mean, for us, we recorded like six or seven records at home. And, and to be able to not go home and be comforted at night, it's better for the music in a way because it makes you think of nothing but the music. Otherwise, you, you have distractions at home and you get a little lazy, I think. Not that we work that hard, but... <laughs> the idea of dads of misery sticks to the tape, you know, is like, cut it loose and fast and fun. He would avoid beating up musicians and playing the song to death. He did not like recording like that. He wanted to get not just the first take, he wanted to capture the rehearsal, the rundown, you know. So he would always be recording. Once they saw they could trust dad and that he wouldn't burn them too hard, but also he would have to ride their own ebb and flow because he said, you know, they could not play first thing in the day as they were sober, you know. And then as they started getting drunk, they got better and better. And then they could really play good for like 15, 20 minutes. They would get too drunk and fall off, you know. So he said each day's window of opportunity was really small. You know, and he would capture the best performances he could. <laughs> Jim was just the perfect guy at the perfect moment 
to sort of help the replacements through their their uncertainty. Jim was the right guy for a number of reasons. Jim came from a background working with difficult artists. In fact, I think he almost romanticized difficult artists. And so he was, and the replacements being quite difficult <laughs> historically and particularly at that time, you know, he knew how to handle them probably better than most producers. Also, he was coming at it from a different perspective. He wasn't a major label hit maker as such. He had worked with as I say, difficult personalities, whether it was Alex Chilton or Ry Cooter and gotten the best out of them. He had a saying, he would be like, do not go sober on my session. He was like, do not enter rehab right before we make our record. He was like, that's not the artist I want. (laughs) He wanted it to all perpetuate and lift the music to a place that wouldn't have been gotten there in a sober state of mind. (laughs) You know, Jim was just one of those guys that would do anything to get the record that he needed. In the liner notes to the box set, I lead with a quote where he says, making records is just about tricks. You know, I've learned a lot of tricks. The record is there in the artist's mind. The trick is getting it out of them and getting it onto the tape. And I think he was able to do that, you know, through a combination of charm and skullduggery and persistence. And I think he really did a lot for the replacements at a time where they were maybe open to new ideas, open to new approaches, open to a new way of working because they were a little bit uncertain and not as sure-footed as they might have been had Bob Stinson been in the band. What we've changed as far as recording is we've taken our time, which is something we rarely do, just because we're very impatient. And it was... a. Uh, it was the best thing in the world for us. It got boring, but it was a. It also got the better songs. If it would have been up to us, we would have been done with the record in a week. Like always, we pretty much record and then maybe overdub a little later. But this time, we would actually play songs over and over and over till we actually got the beat down. Chris was a was, was a big factor in this one, where Dickinson, the producer, got Chris to play in time. And of course, by that time, Tommy and I were you know, bored shitless. Beep. So we would try it the next day, but just the fact that we took a little longer, I think, you know, paid off. Memphis production, Memphis musicians were real focused on the rhythm section, especially the bass drum. They just couldn't help it. This is part of the Memphis sound and the Memphis aesthetic, you know, it's like it's bass drum heavy, it's dance music. And dad said that Chris had never really thought about his foot that much, you know, he was just playing drums. All I know is what my father said was that to make Chris concentrate on his bass drum. (laughs) He went and stole a huge toxic waste barrel and put it in front of the bass drum with microphones all around it, saying that that was how they were going to get that polluted sound, you know? And it was literally like toxic waste, you know, like some nasty barrel. And legend has it that it didn't even sound that good. It was just one of dad's mental tricks, you know? Maybe it changed the sound a little bit. Maybe it didn't, but what it did was focus Chris's eyes and brought his focus to this giant thing affixed to his kick drum. So he started really paying attention to his kick drum patterns. And if you listen to this record, the way Chris Mars is playing really has an impact on how tight this record is. Chris was learning new beats also, where he pretty much is a straight drummer where he'll play like, you know, Ringo or whatever. But uh, like I say, we had time to experiment with, you know, try a different beat for once. And they helped us too. Like Dickinson and the engineers who are also musicians. They suggested things like tune the guitars. It's the first time we'd ever worked with a producer who was really a top-notch musician, who could play anything and pretty much had an idea of what we wanted as far as like what we were playing. 
his role was very uh, limited as far as like he didn't tell us what to play. He left that to us, which you know worked well. I think if we would have had someone trying to tell us what to play, we would have had trouble. But he, you know, got the sound that we wanted as far as Chris was concerned, the drums. And he allowed us to uh, do what we wanted, you know. Other producers would tell you to turn down or try this way and this. He would, you know, let us play on 10 and, you know, hook up four amps at a time. And, you know, he's a rocker. He, yeah. he's, he's an older guy, but he, he definitely hasn't lost the spirit of what it is. Dickinson, yeah, he worked with, uh, with Big Star, I think, on the third album, which I think is, is the best. He's worked with, uh, you know, the Stones and stuff. He's played a little piano on Wild Horses, and he claims he played uh, maracas on Brown Sugar, which, which could be disputed. <laughs> but he was all about sleight of hand and hypnosis and distraction. Like, he would tell stories about Sam Phillips and Chip's moment until they were bored to tears and then send them on their way. If they started arguing, he would just leave the room and let them sort it out. When we would come back, they would just be playing music, and they had sorted it out. And that's brilliant, man, not only as a producer, but as a father and as a band member, you know? That is a genius move to, like, literally have the foresight to take yourself out of the picture and not get involved and let them sort it out. With the replacements, that worked because he was able to, having been around Memphis music and all these legends for so many years, able to distract them, cajole them, trick them, know when to leave them alone, know when to push them. He just pushed all the right buttons or laid back in all the right ways. Dickinson, I think, just knew by training, by instinct, how to get the best out of people. And I think he applied that maybe better than he ever did on any record with Please to Meet Me. Really, it was a, a pinnacle of Dad's career, for sure, the relationship that he and, and the replacements had. And it's funny, Dad had a speech that he would tell like musicians when they would second-guess themselves, like, you know, I'm worried about selling out or this or that. Or like, remember back when you were a, a little kid in your bedroom strumming on a tennis racket, you know? It's like, you weren't dreaming about some punk rock ideal of not selling out at that point. You were dreaming about being a rock star. It's like, you got to do what you got to do, and you owe it to the music once you get it going. And the replacements, man, they were going for it. IOU's an interesting song because they actually demoed it in Minneapolis during the Blackberry Way sessions. There was always some thought that I wanted in writing IOU Nothing was about some of the uh, people the replacements were leaving behind. You know, they'd split with their longtime manager, Peter Jesperson, and who had, was a co-owner of Twin Tone Records, and, and ultimately they would split with Bob Stinson. So there was always some thought that, you know, this was like some kiss off to the people who had, you know, been in their camp who were no longer there. But the truth of the, the matter is the germ of the idea anyway came from Iggy Pop. Paul tells a story about seeing Iggy Pop play some show around this time and was kind of hanging out on the bus with Iggy afterwards. And somebody shoved a you know piece of paper and a pen in Iggy's face asking for his autograph. And Iggy wrote, you know, in all capital letters, I owe you nothing, Iggy Pop. And, you know, immediately Paul said, aha, you know, there's an idea for a song. I owe you nothing. 
That was not worth the name of the song. That's a lot of people think that's about uh, Bob or Peter, our former manager, or uh, the label in particular. It's basically focused at anyone who gets in our way, you know. That's the replacements at their most uh, bitchy, shall I say. I frankly like it because the chorus is nonsense. The, the chorus is wah, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly it's an amazing way to kick off the record. It's one of the great album openers, I think, of all time and really sets the tone for this record that, yeah, maybe Bob Stinson, the wild and crazy Bob Stinson isn't in the band, but we're going to be as ferocious and as loud and as unkempt you know in addition to having the the great iggy connection really is a is a statement and i don't think it's a coincidence you know how it was sequenced at the top of the record As far as writing the songs, working with Tommy and Chris, Alex Chilton, for instance, was a song that I wrote, and I pretty much wrote all the songs. The songs that we're all credited with are songs where I would come up with a major idea and not want to do it, and through Tommy and Chris's insistence or exuberance, they would show me that the song was worthwhile, and they would suggest, you know, tempo or do this. I mean, they never really suggest lyrics or anything like that, but, you know, that constitutes writership in my mind, just the fact that they wake me up to realize when we have a good song. Alex Chilton is an important and I think iconic song in the, in the band's history for a number of reasons. It's interesting because they were obviously working in Memphis at Ardent and Alex was around for these sessions. They'd had a, a relationship with Alex dating back to 1984. And in fact, the show that was supposed to be the replacement's big major label showcase at CBGB's in December of 84, Alex opened for them. As the story goes, uh, Paul uh, met him sort of after the show as uh, everybody was getting paid and you know, he was talking to Alex and complimenting him about one of his songs. I think it was a big star song, probably Watch the Sunrise. And he said, oh, I, I you know, I'm in love with that song. What's that song? Uh, and, it, and the idea was kind of because people, me, in fact, would come up to Alex. I think the first time I met him, I was a little drunk. And I said, you know, Alex, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm in love with uh, that one song. What's that song? You know, I mean, he gets that all the time where people know who he is and know you know, September Girls, or I still don't know the song that I love. It's the it's the uh, second to the last one on uh, number one record. I was, you know, been in his presence where people come up and say, you know, I'm in love with that one song. I mean, I'll sing it differently, but I think I, I, I hit all bases on that. I think it's I'm in love with that song, with the song, and what's that song, and with this song. 
You could take your favorite and sing it through every time. So the line, you know, it comes from a real place. And then the next day, Peter Jesperson and Paul met Alex near where he was staying at St. Mark's Place. And Alex was, you know, hanging out by the trash and fiddling with his stash. And so the song is really colored by a lot of real things in Paul's first impressions of meeting Alex and, and knowing him. Alex Chilton is, I'm happy to say, a friend of ours. Alex is a strange guy where it's difficult to get close to him and to know him. I'm still kind of in awe of him when I uh, meet him and we get together. We hung out in Memphis a little bit. And uh, I figured I wanted to write a song. I wanted to bring it right out into the open. I mean, a lot of bands are influenced by him and will coyly lift a phrase or a riff or something from him. I figure just come right out and write a song about him. You know, what's wrong with that? I mean, everyone else pays homage to him in, you know, around the barn kind of ways. We. You know, Alex is one of the best songwriters in the world, and, you know, I like the guy, and what the hell? That's great. <laughs> he paid us 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> As Paul put it, they lived with those Big Star records in the van for many years. Big Star was probably one of the only groups that all four members of the replacements agreed on listening to. Usually there would be fights in the van over who was playing what music. But I think Big Star was was something that they were exposed to by their original manager, Peter Jesperson. And it was a real kind of discovery that all four of them made at the same time. So it was a touchstone for them. And I think it was a touchstone because Big Star, especially at that point, as I say, was a band that, you know, nobody had heard of, nobody knew. Their records weren't available. They were a band really lost to history. And I think that was both interesting to the replacements, thinking like, wow, you can make records as great as these and nobody knows who the hell you are. But also kind of frightening too, because you can make records as great as these and nobody knows who you are. So I think they represented for the replacements, Alex and, and Big Star and that whole thing represented a lot of stuff that I think the replacements uh, battled with in their own careers and their own sort of figuring their own career out and their fears of like, what is the music business? You know, does it reward creativity and, and excellence and artistry or is it about something else? And I think, you know, Big Star was a touchstone and also kind of a warning for them. I think, you know, Paul really in his heart of hearts wanted to have a pop hit. Maybe he didn't know how to go about doing it, but he wanted some tangible real success. And I think he was always afraid of, in a sense, of becoming this lost cult band like Big Star. So I think that also drives a lot of what is in the song Alex Chilton, those kind of emotions about uh, themselves and Big Star and, and the whole of the music business in a way. Scott Litt, who ended up producing R.E.M. and ended up producing the Last Replacements record, he, he always talks about, well, if that song had been called Buddy Holly, it might have been like the Weezer hit, you know, but calling it Alex Chilton, I think people at Warner Brothers even were like, who's Alex Chilton? You know, they were mythologizing a guy that most people at the time in 1987 didn't know, you know. So it's kind of funny in that sense. Now it's seen as this great tribute to this great artist and cult hero. But at the time it was, you know, probably left a lot of people scratching their heads. We want people to know who Alex is who don't, never heard a big star. And it's like, it's our way of like 
you know, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't want our help, but damn it, he's going to get it, whether he likes it or not. There's no doubt about it that because Big Star was recorded at Ardent, you know, the replacements were like, yeah, let's do it. You know, there would be no Big Star, but for Ardent Studios, they never, never had any success whatsoever, but they made three amazing records that were so influential, even though they were barely even released. So I think... When you look at it through the filter of Alex Chilton and Big Star, it makes perfect sense that they came to Memphis, you know? The story was that Alex was supposed to actually play on the song Alex Chilton, you know, and I think they were a little embarrassed to play it for him, so they'd always turn it down if he if he was ever Alex was ever in the studio at the time. But ultimately, I think Alex grew to appreciate it. His quote was, you know, I feel like some long-lost outlaw like John Wesley Harding, you know, and I think there was, as I put it in my book, I think there was, Paul was myth-making a little bit, but it was also a hopeful projection. My theory was that, you know, in a world where children by the millions scream for Alex Chilton, that maybe they would scream for the replacements as well. This is definitely before the idea of alternative rock as a powerful commercial medium really existed. I mean, this is four years before Nirvana and even a, even a year really before R.E.M. would have a pop radio hit. So the replacements really were kind of on the leading edge of all that. There was a sense of the replacements' self-awareness of being part of this major label machine, hence the very iconic album cover of Paul wearing a torn and tattered shirt, shaking hands with a suited and bejeweled Rolex-wearing record executive. That wasn't very subtle, but it spoke to kind of their own fears and concerns about how they would be perceived. So they like a lot of things, whenever the replacements were worried about how something would look, they would poke fun of it, make fun of it, kind of make a big joke out of it. And certainly them signing to a major label and being this major label band, they were almost making fun of that with the uh, Please to Meet Me album cover. The actual line itself, you know, Please to Meet Me, the pleasure's all yours, was a sort of a joke uh, that Tommy would say whenever they were in a situation where they had to meet all these radio people or record executives, you know, he'd go around shaking everybody's hands, oh, Please to Meet Me, the pleasure's all yours, you know, an old kind of Groucho Marx type joke almost, and ultimately would become the impetus or the inspiration for the album cover. It's sort of, you know, an obnoxious phrase that we've been known to use on occasion. It, it uh, took us um, five, ten minutes to come up with that one. I think Tommy was responsible for that. It, it fit the, uh, the cover, the concept, I don't want to say. How did we pick the cover? Well, let me tell you how we picked the cover. <laughs> It was, you know, we, we've been known to lift a few things in our time, and uh, this one is no exception. It was, uh, we took it from an old Elvis cover, the lettering at least. We, we kind of like the dancing letters, the old 50s sort of feel to it, and we, you know, sort of contrasted it with the, the photo, which was, has nothing to do with Elvis at all, but it, that was, it was that kind of record. We figured we were down in Memphis, and it was a lot bluesier and you know a little a little funkier than we're used to playing and you know that was sort of the spirit we were in <laughs> do it give it up do it give it up 
Paul always referred to this as the state of the mats, being their nickname, state of the mats address. You know, it's one foot in the door, the other one in the gutter. It really is Paul taking a look at the band. And I think at this point, this is, they're getting into the major label experience. You know, they're dealing with lawyers, they're dealing with A&R men, they're dealing with a, a whole record selling apparatus that's there to serve them. And, you know, they were never comfortable in that. And I think Paul was always hyper aware of being in the maw of this machine, this, you know, record making, record selling industry. And I think once they signed to Warner Brothers, you know, a lot of their songs are about that. And it's about them being on the verge of something. You know, there was a lot of expectations for the replacements. I think a lot more so than a lot of alternative bands that got signed because I think people saw they had potential to transcend, you know, indie rock or alt rock or college rock and become the next great American rock and roll band. And so when he sings, I got one foot in the door, one foot in the gutter, that really is kind of his sense of where the band was. I don't know as I, as I battle cry on tour, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, where are we going? Where are we staying? Where are we sleeping? Where are we eating? When do you go on? I don't know. You know, it's it, you can easily slip into that. Plus, you know, you get people, the label people and the lawyers and contract this and video that. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> we don't have all the answers. We, uh, we're not like other bands that manage themselves and know exactly what they're doing. We don't know. We're just, you know, we're along for the ride, kind of. <laughs> I don't know, the lyrics were definitely not written down. It was like we rolled the tape and they were improvised and I have trouble remembering those so obviously I'll just make them up and you know the background part is is open for anyone who wants to help with the I don't know is I have a hard time getting Tommy up to the mic but yeah what are you gonna do with the rest of your life and you can hear Tommy's reply on that I think from the heart <laughs> Arden Studios had just acquired this great new computer sampling machine called the Fairlight and uh, it would record you know, anything, and you could play it on a keyboard. And this was like, there had never been anything like this in Memphis, and Dad loved it. He ate it up. And he was using this to create band tracks. Now, then Paul would come in and sing. Now, with this digital technology, Dad could record every take and just store every version of the, of the lyric. And when I say version of the lyric, the family legend, as I grew up with, Dad never saw a lyric sheet. He said that Paul was not reading lyrics. He said every time he would sing a song, it would be different. And he was just uh, spewing it, as he and Danny Stewart of Green on Red called it. And Paul, as the songs were developing, Paul was trying out different lyrics. And Dad was recording and keeping and logging every one of them. And then when Paul would go home, he'd put all of Westerberg's lyrics and vocals into the computer and place them as he saw fit. And a great example of that is, can I use your hairspray? You know, like, who's the guy behind the board? They say he's a dope. These are just freestyle funny things that Paul was just throwing off, take after take after take. And dad would just put them together. And the funny thing about when you fix a musician's music, like if you do it in their face, some people might get uptight. But if you do it on the sly, then they're like, yeah, that sounds really good. I, yeah, that's better than I even remembered, man. That's, that sounds pretty good, you know? And there's a funny story about Westerberg coming in while Dad was working on some of the vocals. And Westerberg saw Dad touch the keyboard, and Paul's voice came out of the speaker. And he was like, yo, is that me in the box? And Dad was like, that's you. <laughs> he was like, go for it, you know? Like a lot of Paul's songs, he would 
have an idea, a concept, and then would leave sort of lyrical holes in it. So, you know, it's it's a kind of call and response with the band serving as a Greek chorus, sort of replying, I don't know, to all these sort of situations that they're talking about. And it really is based on a lot of true stuff. Oh, our lawyer's on the phone. What did we do now? And things like that. But as they were recording this, they had done the initial sessions with Joe Hardy as the engineer. And then when they came back to start recording the album in the main, John Hampton was there. So when you hear the lyric, uh, who's behind the board, they tell me he's a dope. That was them sort of poking fun at John Hampton. So, you know, once he got into the studio, once he got into the vocal booth, he would improvise and change and come up with things on the fly. And some of the most memorable things in replacement songs are not the things that were written and rewritten and labored over, but were things that were, you know, just on the spot improvisations off the top of Paul's head. And, and so you get great moments like that. I Don't Know also features um, Teenage Steve Douglas, who was a member of the Wrecking Crew. This record is unique in that there are session players and outside musicians, a lot of horn players, uh, string players, and things like that. It was the first time the replacements had really worked with outside musicians in general, but certainly people of that caliber. You know, Steve Douglas is on all the Beach Boys records, on He's the Rebel, on all the Spectre stuff. And you know, the replacements sometimes didn't know how to deal with that because they had been such a self-contained unit for so long. And Paul tells a very funny story about being sort of half in the bag, a little inebriated, trying to explain how the uh, the horn part should go to teenage Steve Douglas. And it's really funny because when you hear it on the break, he hits a kind of weird sharp note, Steve Douglas does. And what he was doing is he was signaling to the engineer to, oh, I screwed that up, let's start it over. But Paul loved his mistake so much that they actually kept it in. And as Paul puts it, you know, we, we're the kind of band that uses this guy's mistakes for our record. Nightclub Jitters was one of those songs where Paul said, well, we can't play this. We need real musicians to come in. And that was one of the songs where Dickinson sort of left them alone with a with a piano and a, and a stand-up bass. And he left the room for 15 minutes. And when he came back, they were at it. They were playing it. And what you hear is the track there. So I think this is one of those instances where they were really trying something outside the box, unlike anything they'd done musically. And uh, it took a little while for them to work their nerve up to do it. But Jim just left the room. And, you know, as he puts it, I came back 10 minutes later. They were playing it. And I think it was one take or two takes. And that was the track. He plays stand-up bass on nightclub jitters, which is funny as hell because he 
uh, the guy brought the thing in, and Tommy looked at it and said, I can't play this. You know, we all went out for a sandwich and came back in 15 minutes, and Tommy was like, boom, 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 boom. You know, he, he picks up, he's, he's a good musician. He's a lousy bass player, but he's a good musician. He, he picks things up real quick. So he, that was why we did that, because, you know, he did that so quick. There were things that Bob was not comfortable playing in terms of softer ballad type stuff that, you know, he felt was more Paul Solo material. Tommy was actually always encouraging of that. Tommy's musical instincts were always profound. And I think this is the point where he really starts to impact the direction of the group. Even if he's not writing the songs or singing the songs, he was the band's kind of editor. He was the band's bullshit detector. He was the, you know, if Westerberg was the brains, Tommy was the heart. You know, he was a from the cradle type of musician. And at this point, you have to realize Tommy's only 1920, but he's been playing in a touring rock and roll band for, you know, six, seven years. So he had a, a load of experience and I think was coming into his own. Tommy was the heart and soul of the band, man. You know, it, it's Westerberg's songs, it's Westerberg's band, but Tommy has that spirit, man. Dad would say that Tommy is an existential hero of rock and roll because he never had a choice. You know, Bob put the bass in his hands and made him play at such a young age. I mean, he just he, he just grew up in rock and roll and in that lifestyle with that band, come on. You know, that's a hard dude, you know. And Tommy demands respect. He demands respect from Westerberg. He knew that he could write songs and he wanted to be heard. And he demanded respect from our dad. They had a real turning point. Someone from the record label was at the studio and dad was talking to him and Tommy chimed in and dad dismissed him as, as if he was, you know, a kid. And the next day, Tommy confronted him about it and, you know, pointed out that that, that just wasn't cool and that he really shouldn't treat Tommy like that. And just woke him up out of a out of a stupor and was like, "Yeah, you're totally right, man. I apologize. I was wrong because you're Tommy Stinson, you know." And hell, Tommy just fired his brother, you know. I mean, it's like what an admirable, what another huge example of how committed they were to go for it, you know. What was also happening is Tommy was a guy who I think looked to older brother and father figures throughout his career, and Jim was the ultimate one in that, and at the right moment, Jim really had an affection for Tommy that lasted and they were close. They worked on numerous subsequent projects, Tommy Solo and band projects in later years and were close until Jim's passing in 2009. His influence and impact is very important on Please to Meet Me. And Dickinson says that, you know, said that himself. He said, whenever I was at a point where I didn't know what to do, I would just follow Tommy's instincts. I would sort of sit and watch and see what Tommy was going to do, how he was going to take the track or direct the track. So I think Tommy's own kind of musical approach was to to embrace everything. That Club Jitters was uh, written in Minneapolis. I, I actually, it was one of the first songs I've ever written, Walking Down the Street, where I had a, a vague idea of the chord sequence, but the melody came to me in my head, and the song, or the, the lyrics were written as I was uh, going to the Super America, I think. You know, just walking, the, going for a walk in the afternoon, and it was very... Uh, it fit my mood at the time because I think uh, someone wanted me to go out and see their band, and I uh, I didn't want to go, f not for the fact that I didn't want to see them, but I just feel uncomfortable sometimes going to nightclubs, and it's the song sort of chronicles that, where you take a drink before you go out, and you don't feel really in uh, touch with the scene that you started with, and you you, you know, there's maybe a few people will poke fun at you or something for... Uh, 
you know, changing or being different, not like you were when you were 19 and you hung out every night. But uh, it was sort of a, a realization that we had changed and, you know, we're, you know, we're eight years older now and we don't hang out at bars every night. It was rooted in his sort of changing relationship, I think, to the Minneapolis scene, to going out to bars and clubs. You know, for many years, you know, they were regulars at shows and going out. And I think once they got on the road and were touring as much as they did, 83, 84, 85, 86, he became less <laughs> likely to spend his uh, downtime, you know, from playing rock clubs in rock clubs in Minneapolis. And I also think there was a sense as the band got bigger, it was less comfortable for him to be out and about in the scene, so to speak. You know, as he said, sometimes you don't know if someone's coming up to you, they want to compliment you or throw a drink in your face or they're jealous or they're this or they're that. So I think, you know, it's a song about kind of growing up and growing away from the bar scene and the club scene that you were a part of. Part of what dad would do is bands would come to Memphis would be he would introduce them to people and hire uh, Memphis musicians to play. And the first cat that he brought in to the replacements was Prince Gabe, who was a cool cat, man, um, a jazz saxophone player, you know, first generation Beale Street Memphis hipster. And Prince Gabe charmed him, you know, and, and that saxophone solo is so beautiful, you know. Dickinson was very sensitive and cognizant of how he wanted to introduce, you know, sort of outside musicians onto a replacement's record, something that had never really happened before. And so he picked as the first person to kind of bring in Prince Gabe. He was a guy that I think Dickinson knew, even though there were probably better horn players, better saxophone players in town. I mean, Memphis is a city full of legendary saxophone players. But I think Dickinson knew instinctively that the guy that the replacements would respond to and who would really gravitate towards and love was Prince Gabe. And sure enough, he came in and he played a killer solo and they just loved the guy. And uh, in fact, you can hear at the end of the track after his solo, he came out of the studio playing his solo and you hear some clapping. And that was the band really clapping for Prince Gabe after he'd played his solo. They loved it so much. Prince Gabe did pass away two days after he played the sax on uh, Nightclub Jitters. And it was, you know, very sad, but he was, uh, he was, uh, he, we got his last notes, what can I say? <laughs> he's played everywhere. I mean, as soon as we walked in, he was talking about all the times he played Minneapolis and, you know, he'd played everywhere and he'd pretty much been a, a nightclub man for the past, you know, 15 years or so. I think he was fairly young. He was still in his uh, mid-50s. Sadly, Gabe died shortly after after he had played. And so that's why on the original album, you see Chris Mars's beautiful kind of uh, etching or drawing of a sort of sad-eyed saxophone player. And that's a tribute to Gabe. But Gabe's presence and the fact that the replacements received him and, and an outside musician so well allowed Dickinson to bring in, you know, Steve Douglas and um, Ben Cauley, uh, who was another horn player, trumpet player, who was uh, you know, the only survivor of the Otis Redding plane crash member of the Barquets, Andrew Love, who was one of the Memphis horns, and then ultimately some of the other uh, string players who came in. But I think Prince Gabe was kind of the, the test and as a way of easing in the idea of these, you know, 
older African-American musicians who'd been around and done and seen all this stuff and were coming from a totally different place than these, you know, kind of alt-rock, punk-rock musicians from Minneapolis. And it was a really interesting uh, merger of musicians and cultures, and it, obviously it worked in a great way. Paul's thing at the beginning was he started the sessions, as was his one, he started combative and then ultimately sort of came around. I think Dickinson had to win him over, and I think Dickinson won him over by not confronting him. Paul famously started, I think, their first meeting. He told Dickinson, I'm not going to give you 100% because you don't deserve 100%. And Dickinson was sort of taken aback by that. I think he had heard that expression and that sentiment expressed by some of the African-American musicians he'd worked with over the years, some of the R&B guys and blues guys, but he had never really heard that from... Uh, from some one of these young sort of alt rockers that he had worked with. It's like Paul said he wouldn't give 100%, but like Dad said, by the time it was over, after he sang The Ledge, first take, once again, not belaboring it, there's the performance. Dad said that uh, Paul gave him 110%, you know. Yeah, the ledge I came up with the riff you know, the, this one afternoon in October it was like a rainy day and it was written in 45 minutes and that's uh, all the best songs all my best songs are written real quick and they will irritate you for the next couple of days and that's exactly what, what what that did it was written and I couldn't think of anything else but that and I couldn't wait to go and practice I wrote it on a Friday afternoon and I couldn't wait till Monday we got together and it's uh it's um, written, you know, not necessarily out of personal experience because I'm still here. It's an observation. And if anyone wants to read anything into it other than that, then, you know, that's their problem. And the lyrics, you know, they just came. It was like it wasn't, I didn't have to sit and I didn't have to think, you know. It was just wham, wham, wham. I turned on the little tape recorder. I had it on the ironing board. And uh, it was uh, partially out of... Uh, the way I I had felt at certain times in my life, you know, I, I figured if you're going to kill yourself, you kill yourself. But I had tried to commit suicide once, I think, when I was younger. And I can still feel how I felt then. I mean, not like now that I'm totally, you know, A-OK -okay and the happiest guy in the world. I mean, I'm doing fine, but I can feel for people that feel totally lost and have no one to turn to. So it was written sort of half of my own experience and half of, you know, maybe me trying to feel how it is to be up there on the ledge. And it's it's not written in any way to uh, condone that kind of stuff. You know, obviously it's, it's, it's bullshit, it's wrong. But to someone who does it... It's pretty selfish. It's, it's I guess it's selfish, but you know, I can't even say that. It's, it's, it's sad. It's sad more than it's selfish or anything. You know, I wrote the song about it because I can feel it. Watch me fly and die, watch me fall. I'm the boy they can't ignore. For the first time in my life, I'm sure. All the love sent the high to play. 
Sledge is an interesting song. I mean, it's sort of, uh, I think, you know, the influence of sort of Hank Williams and, and some of the folk stuff that Paul had been familiar with, gothy, doomy, gloomy country and folk that he had sort of digested as a youth was coming up in this. And I think, you know, there had been, this is the, the era of teen suicides were becoming a, a kind of thing and teen suicide clusters were in the news. I think Paul had had his own sort of teenage experiences with, uh, you know, kind of half-ass overdose or, you know, the difficult teen years where he contemplated this stuff. And I think it was really written based on his own personal experiences that he'd had as a teenager and kind of recalling those. It's uh, more of like the lyrics first and those kind of songs, Answering Machine and The Ledge. It is basically the lyric that is the song and the guitar figure behind it is simply, you know, background for the lyric. You know, an answering machine is the same way. Other, you know, other songs we'll have will be full chord changes. And this was just, the idea is the song. The music is secondary, although the music is great on Chris and Tommy's part, you know, basically, because they played very tight and emotionally. You know, they reached beyond themselves on that one. And I think they... You know, they felt it too. We all felt it while we were playing it. This is a depressing, frightening song, and, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit scary. And we really, you know, got into it. It was done in one take, too. I mean, we did other takes, but that was the very first take. And we did it 40 other times, and we realized that the first one was the best. You know, I remember Dickinson just being completely, and, and, and the engineers at Arden being completely overwhelmed at, at Paul's performance on that song, his vocal performance. And, and they cut that track, I think, live in one take. But yeah, I think everyone was amazed that they, you know, were able to kind of pull that out of themselves. And I think after the song was over, after the take was over, everybody sort of felt like they'd experienced a, a guy jumping off of a building, they'd experienced a suicide. Uh, so, you know, it was a pretty potent track, and I think it still stands up as one of their best and certainly one of the highlights of the record. But its bigger <laughs> impact was in that it sort of, cut the legs out from under the record's sort of sales potential because of what happened with MTV and, and, and radio. I don't care if they play the damn thing. The only thing that bothers me is, is there's just the misconception behind the lyrics, and it's not promoting suicide in any way. It's, you know, I, I was a f when I was younger, and I tried to kill myself, and look at me now, I'm fine, you know. You succeeded. I, I came out of it. And if anything, this is like help for someone who's younger, who doesn't know what they're doing, and is maybe contemplating something like that, and doesn't know how to handle it. It's like, you know, you, you can do it, you know? You'll change, you know? Stick, stick with it, hang in there. I mean, you know, I did. And it's not like, you know, it irritates me, it makes me angry that someone thinks that I would do this, you know, it's like some crass move to get attention, to like jump on the bandwagon, some kids, killed themselves in uh, New Jersey, so I'm gonna write a song about it. That's You know, I did it because I feel it and I can feel for the kind of person who would wanna do that. And the people that don't understand it are the people that are secure with their lives and, and they can't feel for that. And we feel for that. I mean, we're not suicidal, but we know what it's like to be alone and to be desperate. And that, this song is, is like, you know, it's a nod to them. It's saying, you know, it's okay, you know, you'll get through it. But I felt that way when I wrote it, and I, you know, I won't apologize for it. And if it's not played, that's okay. But I just want everybody to know that it, it wasn't done, you know, to, uh, to glorify the, you know, the stupid act like that.
this was the song that was picked as the first single for the record by the Warner Brothers radio people, I think because they felt like it had some potential as an AOR radio hit, you know, sounded a little like Blue Oyster Cult or is a little bit more of a conventional rock song in its own way, had a hot solo, kind of minor chord sort of feel to it that you could almost hear on radio. So they started playing it and they made a video for it even though the video was just sort of static of the replacements kind of eating their lunch. And coincidentally, there happened to be a number of teen suicides, one teen suicide cluster in New Jersey right around the time, uh, shortly before the release of the song. And I think MTV, which was New York-based and sort of in the backyard of where all this stuff was happening, they got cold feet about the subject matter of the song. And it wasn't you know, the kind of thing where you could sort of change, you know, as far as a video, it was the song itself, the whole theme of the song. There was nothing you could change or edit to make it acceptable. So MTV stopped playing The Ledge, which it had started to play a little bit. And in kind, MTV being sort of the leader at that point in terms of what was getting played both on video and in radio, radio stations followed suit and took the song off the air. So it really kind of cut the legs out from this record as far as radio went, which is just kind of, you know, the replacements made a lot of their own bad luck and dumb luck in their career. But this was one of those things where, you know, they had potentially a a kind of hit song or at least something they were working to radio and people getting very sort of nervous about the subject matter of the song at the time because of these teen suicides, you know, it pulled off MTV, pulled off radio, and they had to move to another track, which ended up becoming Alex Chilton in terms of what they were pushing to radio. Paul always said, listen, you know, this is a depressing song about teen suicide probably wasn't exactly going to light up the charts, but it did certainly impact the album and I think made everybody a little gun shy about their relationship with radio and MTV at that time. So, yeah, and then, of course, a few years later, Pearl Jam's Jeremy is sort of addressing similar kinds of things. And my theory is it was easy for MTV to kind of take a stand against the replacements. They weren't hugely popular. They didn't have a lot of sway. You know, again, that's one of those cases where that was a bit of bad timing and, and bad luck for the replacements, unfortunately. Nevermind was uh, is one of my favorite songs in the record, and it almost didn't make it because it was uh, it was done the way it was, and a few people thought it was very vague. And I tried to go in and do the lyric over, and I got pissed off. And then it ended up with the lyrics that are on there. So the, partially, the lyrics are for the people who are trying to make me change it. And it is like it's. It's it's over. It's all over. But the shouting, you know, never mind. It's like, get out of my face. You know, if the song doesn't make sense, that doesn't matter. It's the feeling is there. I mean, I can. The feeling is like, never mind. It's similar to I don't know, but I don't know. A little, a few more steps. It's like, okay, you know, just never mind. You don't understand me. I don't know what to say to you. The words I thought I brought, I left behind. So never mind. Nevermind was a, it was a really interesting song. That, that sort of quavering sort of guitar part, uh, guitar sound, Dickinson added. I think he ran Paul's uh, guitar through a Leslie. But it really is an interesting, texturally interesting replacement song. And it is kind of 
felt like the most anthemic thing on the record. For whatever reason, I think the replacements managers seized on that as having the most hit potential. And Russ Rieger, who was one of the band's co-managers, really was pushing Paul to write a kind of populist set of lyrics to it. You know, like, make this the hit. Write the lyrics here that would just be, you know, kind of general mainstream populist sort of thing that everyone could shout and, and pump their fists to. And of course, you know, telling Paul or urging Paul to do anything is kind of probably going to have the opposite effect. And so instead of writing some kind of uplifting anthem, he ends up writing Nevermind all over, but the shouting, just a waste of time. I mean, it's, you know, the kind of pessimistic view of it. A lot of my lines are very obvious. I mean, you could probably guess the ones. I suppose your guess is more or less as bad as mine. That's uh, I've been waiting for six years to use that one. You know, I'm I'm a sucker for turning phrases the wrong way, where it's like, please to meet me, for instance. You know, the opposite way it's supposed to be. You know, it, it's sort of the lazy man way of writing a song. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I like to do things backwards, I guess. A lot of the lyrics, I think, I'm, I'm definitely stuck in a mold, and uh, I'm, I've come to grips with it. I can only write certain kind. Of, I cannot write a real happy, good song. I've tried. Some of the songs are cheery sounding, but I can never really bring myself to write lyrics that are just, you know, happy-go-lucky, sunny day, and I'm in love with you, baby. You know, it's like they always have to be... I used to be in love with you, and now I have to go jump off the ledge, baby. I think this song bears uh, the influence, and you're talking real-world influences, of their relationship with Bob. You know, absolution is out of the question. There's some lyrics in there that I think speak to the band's relationship and Paul's relationship with Bob and as it was sort of starting to grow distant and wanting to apologize and wanting to talk about things but never really having the words to say it. And, and so you just say, well, never mind. And I think, you know, that has some impact on, on what you're hearing in Nevermind, but it certainly is a deeply felt song. Yeah, I mean, a line like Absolution is out of the question, you know, there's probably some guilt about having to part ways with Bob, but also, you know, Paul was came from a big Catholic family, and, you know, I think there was a lot of Catholic guilt woven into his lyrics, or that sensibility certainly was not far away from his writing. I think he writes very much like somebody who grew up in the bosom of the Catholic Church, and guilt and revenge and all those sorts of ideas, I think, are sort of deeply embedded in what he wrote and, and the songs, and and in his life, you know, and so I think that that's the really kind of why I think Westerberg is such an effective songwriter and why his songs are so timeless in that more often than not, he's not conjuring characters or scenarios. He's actually writing about a life he's lived and the feelings he's felt in a way that he somehow manages to make mostly personal, but just universal enough that at least, you know, maybe not tens of millions of people, but enough people sort of feel them. And, and, you know, I think if you feel replacement songs, you feel them deeply. And if you feel them as a band, you feel them deeply. And I think that's a lot of that is down to Paul's ability to kind of take his experiences and his feelings and his innermost thoughts and sort of synthesize them into great rock and roll and great rock and roll lyrics and meaningful songs that even if you didn't know the real backstory, 
you could still sense the feeling behind it. And I think Nevermind is one of those songs where the music and the production and Paul's delivery, it all works as a piece and and you feel the impact of it, even if you don't really know who the story is about or that it's about Bob. Valentine is, uh, I'm still deciding what it's about. It's, it's about kind of a person, but it's, uh, I don't like really explaining it because a lot of people will take it in different ways. And I kind of enjoy having people come up and say that Valentine is cool because it's about this and that. I think it's basically about the fact that the line, uh, tonight belongs to you, tomorrow's mine, saying that, uh, you know, taking our usual loser standpoint that, our time is not now, and it's, you know, we're just uh, collecting valentines rather than making love to the moment. It sounds pretty heavy, but, you know. Well, you wish upon a star that turns into a plane. And I guess that's right on par. Cruise left to blame. The opening of this is, you know, when you wish upon a star and it turns into a plane. You know, I think that's such a brilliant thing because how many times we've all kind of looked up and seen a sort of twinkling star and then realized it's a, it's a plane. I mean, it's, it's such a simple little detail, everyday thing, uh, a common thing that people have experienced. And he turns it into this really whip smart opening for the song. And you're already off balance, you know, with the first line of that song. So is this a happy song? Is this a sad song? Is this a gut punch ending? What's going to happen? And, and, you know, I think most replacement songs, there is a twinge of uh, sadness and pain and heartbreak at its core. You know, I don't think there's anything as a completely happy <laughs> replacement song. Certainly, you know, maybe the sort of uh, their early punk rock stuff had an emotional thrust that was upbeat or defiant. But I think once you get into this kind of mid-period, classic replacements mid-period from Let It Be On, Paul's songs were always twinged with a bit of heartbreak at their core, even his love songs. The vocal I like because there was some controversy there that it, someone thought it didn't sound terribly spirited, which it doesn't. But uh, that's kind of what I liked. It, it sounded like I was very tired and uh, sort of weary of the whole thing, and that's it fits the song well, so we had to uh, have a discussion about that. They thought it should be belted out more like stridently singing, tonight makes love, you know. And as it is, it's sort of weary of like, our day will come. Yeah. 
Valentine was something where I think they had cut it and hadn't quite finished it. And when they had the playback for the label, Seymour Stein, who was always conscious of <laughs> costs and financial details, said, well, the, the album was so short, it was just over 30 minutes. He was worried that maybe it would get tagged as an EP because of the running time. So he said, put another song on. And so that's why when you hear it, it really doesn't have a bridge and they just sort of repeat the first part. And so it was a last minute edition, but I think it actually is a really important not only an important song in Paul's catalog, but really kind of makes the album, brings a real balance to it in terms of, you know, a kind of emotional content. I think there was maybe some sense that the band was aware of not overstuffing the record with sad songs or slow songs or soft songs. Some of that was a perception thing. I think, you know, Bob being out of the band, who had been the sort of wild and crazy sort of beating heart of the band, they felt like they didn't want to be seen as too soft you know, coming on the heels of Bob's departure. So I think maybe that maybe went into some of the thought process of what they put on and what they left off. So Shooting Dirty Pool is a song, another song the replacements had demoed, and it was one of the songs in the demo stage that they were kind of stretching out on, adding a, you know, kind of sonic theatricality to it. It was a rock and roll song. It was about, you know, rock and roll loudmouths, about people they dealt with. It was specifically, I think, inspired by one promoter in New Jersey who they'd had some sort of issue with, and Paul had had it out with him at one point. I guess it's a cliche, but it's a, a sort of aimed toward... Uh journalists and people that thrive on uh, spreading rumors, you know, which is everyone knows is bullshit. Do yourself a favor, get yourself a spine, everybody's choking on the grapevine. <laughs> And so it was, I think it was the needed rocker on the record, but rather than just being the sort of usual showcase for Bob, since he wasn't there, they kind of took the opportunity to kind of make a, a little bit of sonic theater with it. And so you've got the kind of oral sounding bar fight, you know, glass breaking and it sounds like a fight and then the breakdown. And there's this section where there's a lot of heavy metal kind of guitar uh, noise collage. And Dickinson was really into the, that idea and running with it. And so he proposed kind of really building that aspect of the song up. The song Shoot Nerdy Pool, that had a vision. He wanted to make a music video of this song and he envisioned a bar fight in the instrumental section. And he was trying to musically illustrate the sounds of a bar fight. And so they broke some glass and they were making noise. And in fact, as part of it, enlisted his 13-year-old son, Luther Dickinson, who's now went on to become a guitarist for the Black Crows and leads his band, the North Mississippi All-Stars, to come in and play because he was adept at making these sort of heavy metal Eddie Van Halen kind of guitar noises. Dad saw a way in and he got permission from the band bless their hearts to bring me in to make some like heavy metal guitar noises you know so we did like the the steve i laugh from the crossroads soundtrack you know backstory like dad had just finished 
doing the Crossroads uh, film score with Ry Cooter, which is where the Karate Kid gets the blues and goes to the Crossroads looking for Robert Johnson's lost song. And Steve Vai, before he was, this was really his biggest break, early break, was in the film playing like this crazy animated heavy metal guitar. And he totally uh, charmed Dad. And Dad was like, I want you to make that Steve Vai laugh. You know, wee, 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 wee. I need you to do some of that Eddie Van Halen two-handed tapping. You know, and I could just barely do any of it. So anyway, he got okay from the band to bring me in. And I went in to Arden and uh, played some guitar noises that he put into the computer and placed as he saw fit. It's an interesting bit of hard rock from the replacement. Certainly, the hardest rocking thing on this record, but it's got a, an artistic and theatrical bent, I think, which you know Dickinson took and ran with. The shooting dirty pool story. So Paul goes in, and sure enough, starts making up lyrics. And I knew because I was intimate with the song. I'd heard uh, all the rough mixes, and um, he was making up new words. And <laughs> when it came to the bridge, he said. You're the coolest guy that I ever have smelt and a notch on nobody's belt. And I laughed out loud in the control room because I just thought it was funny and I knew it was a new line that I hadn't heard before. Later, Dad let me in on the joke. That the joke was on me because I put on what I thought was my cool shirt and I smelled like a, a middle school homecoming dance, you know what I mean? And Because uh, I had some cheap cologne on my dirty shirt. And uh, Westerberg was making fun of me on the mic. <laughs> Maybe my greatest claim to fame. Oh man, it's not the guitar solo, it's the fact that I inspired the rock and roll lyric. <laughs> Coolest guy ever I've smelt. <laughs> Red Red Wine, again, a song they had demoed, and I think the band was really thinking, like, how are we going to get the energy up? Because the original demo of it was so so strong or had the right energy. But, you know, they the replacements were still drinking. They were, as Paul puts it, they were actually, there was three of them, but they were drinking for four now that Bob was gone. And I think, you know, certainly uh, that plays into Red Red Wine, which was a song that I think Paul wrote from experience, talked about his early experiences, sort of maybe drinking red wine with his family, you know, big Catholic family Sundays, I guess they would save the wine for post-mass. And, and Martin Zeller of the Gear Daddies, which is another Minneapolis band. I think him and Paul had shared some stories about having the same experience, which is why Martin is name-checked there, Red Red Wine on Sundays, just like Martin said. So so again, you know, something sort of pulled from Paul's own life, but really, a, I guess you could say it's a sort of a throwaway rocker, but just so ferocious. And it shows you that even in this high-tech, high-dollar studio, the replacements could sort of really strip things back and just kind of pounce on a track like this. Just like my 
I was studying Paul's guitar techniques because he was using altered tunings, which we grew up with in our community, but not the way Westerberg was doing them. He was playing in open G tuning, but in the key of F. And it literally blew my dad and his friend Jim Lancaster's mind because they both, everybody played in open G. Keith Richards, they, you know, made it famous. Furry Lewis, blues and folk, everybody used open G at that point. But nobody played punk rock in other keys in open G before Westerberg. And, and like when dad took me to the studio, dad was like, okay, now I'm going to have Paul play guitar for you and I need you to figure out what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> so sure enough, I walk in and say, let's, let's redo that rhythm guitar on Red Red Wine. Paul's like, whatever. So he threw on the Dan Armstrong plexiglass guitar, just like Black Flag. I was like, oh, that's so cool. Look at that guitar. And um, he did Red Red Wine, which open G tuning in the key of F. And I was like, boom, got it. Since there wasn't the two guitar attack, a lot of the songs Paul was writing in the lead up to Please to Meet Me ended up being more open tuning. So he could sort of cover leads and rhythm at the same time. So I think Bob's absence in the lead up to this album definitely impacted the kinds of songs and the structures of songs and the way they were writing. And there's a number of things in open A and I think some in open G on this record, you know, so it's just a matter of fact that if your second guitarist isn't around, that's going to change the dynamic of how you're writing, how you're sort of structuring songs. And I think Paul was a great lead player. And I think obviously because Bob wasn't in the band, he had to sort of step up into that void and really kind of handle all the guitar duties on Please to Meet Me, but particularly the lead stuff. And I think he deserves probably a lot more credit as a guitarist than he gets. Red Wine, though, that's a happy song. Well, it's supposed to be, but I would never feel happy when I hear it. I guess that's what I mean. When I hear Red Wine, I get a little mad. And I'm not anger, but I think just the fact that it is a, it is a rock and roll song. I just, you know, I, get, I tense up a little and I, I, I want to, like, hit something, you know? It doesn't make me... Like relax and go do 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 do. It's you know it's like. Rawr. I mean I could see how someone you get a giggle out of them, but it's not. They're not real happy songs. It's you know sort of like working working man you know frustration release song or something. Paul always said the replacements are two kinds of bands. We can be one kind of band on stage, one kind of band in the studio. And I think the model for him was always somebody like the Faces. You know the Faces had records where they had rockers and ballads. But when they got on stage, it was mostly the rockers. They were they were a good time party rock and roll band, which is what the replacements were too, but with depth. And I think on this record, you probably get almost a better balance of the perfect balance of that when you have songs like, uh, you know, Valentine and, and Skyway and Can't Hardly Wait, but you've got your IOUs and your Shooting Dirty Pools and your Red Red Wines all in the same place. So I think Paul was always working towards the idea of being the kind of band that could rock as good as anyone, but write songs with substance, songs with heart, you know, that could break your heart as well. And I think this record has all that. The record is one thing, the live performance is a, a total other deal. It's like, that's the way it's always been. And that's, I think, our basic problem with the people who love our, our records, the slower material and the quiet songs are the ones who, who hide in back. And the ones who come up front are the ones who like the loud rushes stuff. And it's like, you know, live, we tend to play that, but the ones we really like are the ones who are too afraid to come up and say hello. The ones with the brains, the stupid ones up front, I mean, we love them too, but... Well, we couldn't honestly exist without the people in front. I mean, we, we love to feel like it's a party. When you have a bunch of like uh, quiet, uh, it's about all you can see anyway, as far as the lights. I know, that's the bad thing. You can only see the loud mouths. 
So it's hard to sometimes remember that there's someone in back who's been waiting for a year to hear you play Skyway or something. I was too scared to come up and talk to you. I know. And those really are the ones people. that you want to run out and hug and say, like, you know, we did it for you. Skyway, high above the busy little one way. In my stupid hat and gloves at night, I lie awake, wondering if I'll sleep. Wondering if we'll meet out in the street. Skyway. A lot of people don't know what the, the skyways are. They don't have skyways in too many places. I know, that's kind of why I liked it too, because it's our own little private song for Minneapolis. They're basically the sidewalks above the street because it's too cold in the winter to walk in the businesses, you know, feel they'll get people to come downtown. And it's like you can walk for miles and not ever go outside. You can walk around the whole city through the Skyway system. And it's generally the people who are shoppers and, and work. And so this song was sort of written from the point of a guy who's, you know, like myself, who I, I don't go up in the Skyways, you know? I mean, what do I have to do up there? I, I never go shopping or anything, so I sit down there and watch the people walk by. Skyway is an interesting song in that it's, I mean, certainly the most Minneapolis-specific thing or one of the most Minneapolis-specific things they wrote. I think early on, you know, because they had never really traveled outside of Minneapolis, the replacements, or Paul, even in general, hadn't been outside. There's a lot of songs on their first record, you know, Hanging Downtown and uh, Raised in the City. They're really about Minneapolis. But I think, you know, as the replacements got on the road and their universe expanded, he was writing more about the different people and different scenarios and different places that I think the road became, you know, I think that's why his songwriting opened up really through Let It Be and, and Into Tim. But I think being away from home, recording in Memphis and, and being away from home for a really pretty extended time had a bearing on him really kind of focusing on Skyway and, and you know, getting just the hometown details right. I mean, obviously the Skyways are the sort of interconnected walkways above downtown Minneapolis. And I think, you know, again, this is another unrequited love song, you know, told from the perspective of a, of a guy like Paul who, who isn't a shopper or a worker and he just sees the apple of his eye or this girl walking up in the Skyway and finally works his nerve up to go and kind of brace her and see her and talk to her and, and he's in the Skyway and he looks down and she's on the street. You know, again, it's a little bit like Valentine where it's like, you know, that, that gut punch, bittersweet kind of twist to the song. All in one day Saw you walking down that little one way Where the place I catch my ride most every day There wasn't a damn thing I could do or say Up in the skyway Skyway Paul was a guy who got homesick, I think, pretty pretty easily. You know, they, they were never a band to stay on the road for months at a time, you know, maybe a couple weeks or a few weeks, and they'd come back home. And I think being in Memphis for an extended stay kind of made him a little homesick and made him focus on some of that stuff. I think that's why, you know, Skyway came out and was recorded. And I think he woke up one morning and went in probably before the band and recorded this just on his own. And then later Dickinson added some keys or some organ and Chris added some little foot tapping. But in this case, Paul got a little homesick and really wrote the ultimate Minneapolis song while he was in Memphis. 
I think I, for the first time in my life, I feel old. I feel, I feel old. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not paranoid about it, and I feel like that I'm, you know, no longer a young man and can't play rock and roll. How but I'm 27. I'm 27, and I can, I feel it. <laughs> and I no longer try to be 20 or 18. And for the past two years, I, I, you know, I was 18 for six years. It's exhausting. And it is. It wears you out and it makes you want to quit. And, you know, and that's my answer for people that don't like nightclub jitters or can't hardly wait. It's like, I'm not 20 anymore and I, I'll be damned if I'm going to pretend I am. Can't Hardly Wait was the song that wouldn't die. You know, it had been in the replacements repertoire at that point, probably for three or four years. I think he wrote it in 83 or 84. It was certainly being played live on the Let It Be tour. They tried recording it at least two times before this. They'd done some demos actually with Alex Chilton of it. They did two versions, a kind of full band version and then an acoustic kind of ghostly version that Paul had done in an air shaft at the st- in the at Nicollet Studios and then they tried recording it again for Tim and somehow Paul never liked how it sounded for whatever reason although I think all three of those early versions of them are, are outstanding but Somehow it just wasn't to his satisfaction. And so it kind of got put away, although they would still play it live occasionally. So for all intents and purposes, it seemed like Can't Hardly Wait was never going to be recorded or released. But I think uh, the band's A&R man, Michael Hill, suggested that they try it one more time in Memphis. And I think because they were working in this higher level studio with Dickinson, I think they thought, well, okay, well, let's try it. Let's try it here and see if it works. And I think they did a few versions of it at a kind of, you know, the typical pace and tempo they'd been playing at, more of a kind of fast, upbeat number. And for some reason, again, it wasn't clicking. And I think one morning they came in, maybe a little hungover, and tried it again. And this is the song that I think they really took on the the Memphis musical personality. I mean, they, they slowed it down, put a little more slack into the riff that threads the song. I think Chris Mars, you know, he's playing a little bit behind the beat in a kind of classic Al Jackson, Booker T and the MGs Memphis style. And then I think that's when the song really kind of came to life. Can't Hardly Wait was a funny song because we'd had it for three years and we tried to record it, I think, on the last two records. And we had frankly gotten a little tired of it. And so we, we, we tried to do it differently. We figured the song's either dead forever or we're going to do it differently and I'm going to change some of the words. So we did record it differently, very quietly. I think probably because I was hung over that day. And I, I was, I couldn't stand hearing a loud guitars. I mean, people are going to think that because big noise replacements trying to have a hit. But basically, I was hungover and I couldn't stand my guitar loud. So we started off with the quiet guitar, and everything sort of fell in from there. We, after the quiet guitar was on, we figured, uh, you know, let's put horns on and then strings, and it got you know a little out of hand. But the lyrics were uh, rewritten the following night, not entirely, but the crack and the drape was right yeah. from the the Holiday Inn at, you know, in Memphis. Yeah. And I'd always shied away from writing a road song, like here we are on the road and ain't it hell. But it is. <laughs>
he played a guitar, a guitar riff on the Jesus Rides Beside Me. That's Alex playing that. The line, Jesus Rides Beside Me and He Never Buys Any Smokes. I mean, it's, it's, it's country corn, and it's, it's true. <laughs> I wrote it on the acoustic guitar. I came up with the riff first. Da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, sort of like... No, it was more like this. You know, then I refined it after a while. No, but Chris and I actually recorded a version that was just, you know... It was just back and forth, and he was like tapping a, a cardboard box or something, and we both sang harmony. And strangely enough, that version now is uh, in the Mississippi River. By now, it's probably down in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> it had a lot of embellishments that came afterwards in terms of the horns and strings. You know, there's a little bit of controversy about the horns and the strings, I think, again, because the band was conscious of, you know, departing too much from the formula at that point in the light of Bob Stinson's departure. And, you know, it was still seen as, it's funny today to think of, you know, a rock band or an indie rock band, it being weird to have strings and horns where there's whole whole sort of subgenres of indie rock that are based around strings and horns. But at the time, you know, for a rock and roll band, alt-rock band, it was seen as like this big departure. But I think it's a perfect production and really Dickinson's greatest moment on the album, the way he pulls all those elements together. You know, the horns are done by Ben Cauley of Barquet's fame and Andrew Love, one of the members of the Memphis Horns. And then Max Hulls, who is a uh, orchestral player with the Memphis Symphony, he came in and did the string parts. Uh, and I think initially the replacements were okay with the horns and maybe less confident about the strings because, you know, that was seen as maybe a quote-unquote soft move. But really Dickinson was not just taking it back to Alex Chilton and Big Star, but he was taking this record back to the box tops and their pop soul productions, you know, Dan Penn's pop soul productions of the late 60s on the box tops. And that really was based on this kind of combination of horns and strings. And I think that's what you get. So it's really one of the the true Memphis moments on this record. It blossomed into the, the grand production that it is today, which is... The Memphis horns and uh, the strings, which I have, have grown to uh, accept. I don't, uh, I'll tell you right now, it wasn't my idea and I didn't like it at first and I can handle it. But I, you know, I mean, you're going to hear the song live and you're going to wonder, you know, if you're coming to hear the replacements because Can't Hardly Wait is your favorite song, we may have a little trouble. <laughs> It's like we're still a rock and roll band on the very outer edges of rock and roll, what a lot of people think that is. We're very sloppy, we're very loud and spirited, and that always comes first rather than musicianship and trying to sound like the record. So you'll probably hear something that sounds like, you know, There's no way to tell how they got Can't Hardly Wait, but that was a real bone of contention, man. My mom hated the horns so bad, they nearly got divorced. It was a really gnarly fight they had about those horns, man. She hated those horns. And Tommy hated the horns. He got on an airplane and left. Uh, Westerberg could stomach the horns, but the strings, you know, he noted that the strings took it too far for him, you know? It was a real bone of contention. Dad had this thing about production. He'd be like, 
You've got to be able to make a split second decision and stick to it, even if you realize you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, who knows where it all lies, but he was not budging on Can't Hardly Wait. And they got a great version, you know. The funny thing about Paul objecting to the strings is when they demoed the song in 1985, he actually was the one that brought in a cellist, this woman named Michelle Kinney, I believe, who was a receptionist at Twin Tone Records and had her add cello to the end of the song. So in fairness, Paul was the first one to put strings on uh, on Can't Hardly Wait back in 1985. But Dickinson certainly took it to another level with the, you know just this sort of overall production approach on this track. The record company was really high on what the replacements had done on this record, so much so that they picked up their the option on their contract, to which Paul famously replied, suckers. But, but uh, Warner Brothers was so high on this record that they actually threw a playback party in Memphis so that people could hear the record, and they flew in 30 or 40 people from all over the country, from New York, from Los Angeles, and, and their other outposts, to come listen to this record, really to get people excited to promote and sell this record and take the replacements to the next level. Uh, you know, Seymour Stein, their label head at Sire, was really kind of, you know, I think Seymour understood in the same way that Dickinson understood that the replacements were a unique rock and roll band that was part of something, part of this bigger thread in American music. And I think when you listen to this record, that's true. And I think people were really excited, you know, when they had this big playback party in Memphis, everyone went away thinking this is going to be the record that broke the replacements. As it turned out, because of the controversy with MTV and The Ledge, it didn't quite happen that way. But also, I think the radio environment, alt-rock radio, was not really a band-breaking format at that point quite yet. That was still a few years off. So even though Alice Chilton and Ken Hardly were kind of small alternative hits, it really didn't do enough to get them to sell half a million or a million records. Ultimately, the album doubled the sales of Tim uh, and sold something like 250,000 copies, which at the time seemed like a disappointment. Now, of course, that's a massive number if any band sold that. But, but at the time, I think there was just some thought that their career would be accelerated. So I think what Please to Meet Me ultimately did was set up the next record. It only led to a lot more pressure on the next record, which ultimately, in a way, kind of hastened the band's demise. You know, Paul always said, those last few years of the band, we were chasing a, a kind of success, pop success, and it really hurt us. And I think this is maybe the last album that for a variety of reasons they made as purely as any of their first five albums, you know, where they made a replacements record, certainly a different kind of record because of the circumstances and because of how they were working and who they were working with. But I think it was still a record that was relatively free from the pressures and expectations that would really kind of ratchet up and in some ways undercut and undermine the band's career over the, the last few years going into the late 80s and early 90s. So Tommy and I were making his last Bash and Pop record during the reunion tour. We actually recorded in London like the afternoon of one of the shows. And it was a song he wrote about the tour, you know, about the experience of working with Paul again, you know, after all this time. And Tommy was sad, man. He was disappointed. He really hoped that they would be able to form a new working relationship. 
But man, it's impossible to to break those patterns and those personal habits. You know, it's like a band has a chemistry and uh, you fall into the roles. It's funny watching those guys in London. They're so funny, man. They got into an argument on stage, on the mic, during the show about the chord change to one of the songs. Afterwards, Paul made a disparaging remark about the chords. of the like, ah, it's like two to the five to the six, you know? And Tommy's like, ah, oh, I play what I always played. And Tommy literally played in his face on stage. And Westbrook's like, ah, you know? <laughs> like, so funny, like, they're still arguing about how certain uh, arrangements of their own songs go all these years later. It's really sad that they're not still playing reunion shows and Man, I really hold my breath until the next one. I really look forward to, to more of that. It was so wonderful to, you know, to see thousands of kids singing these songs and enjoying it. And Tommy, you know, while we were making this record, you know, we would talk about it. And uh, I was like, Tommy, man, it's like the replacements, man, it's a rock and roll tragedy. It's like, yes, there's comedy, but, you know, it's a sad story. You know, rock and roll is is violent and blood and guts. And, you know, it's like, here you are, man. You're just a young kid growing up in this polluted lifestyle, you know, with your older brother who had his own demons and later was pushed out of the band. And then you went on. And then the band finally broke up and you never got your due, you know, bad record deals and bad business. And you never truly benefited from the fruits of your labor. And the replacements, man, this is not... This is not a happy ending, man. It's a tragedy and it's sad and you hear it in the music and you feel the tension in the music and you never know, you know, is it going to be a great show or is it going to fall apart? Is it going to be a great show until it falls apart? Is it a great show when it falls apart? Who knows, you know, it's not a happy ending. The replacements, that's kind of the story of their whole career is like their songs were one thing in context in the 80s, but over time, I think they've grown both in stature and in meaning. You know, a song like Left of the Dial, which is really about kind of celebrating college radio and the spirit of core of, of that whole world, probably only meant something to a handful of people at the time. But now it's taken on this whole other meaning. It's, you know, they name box sets after it. And it's a kind of a buzzword left of the dial or a buzz a phrase, you know, that people know what that means. And so it, it has taken on a bigger meaning. And I think there's a lot of the songs on Please to Meet Me at the time, they were seen as like, oh, this is a rocker or this is our pop song or whatever. But I think that the songs have grown in stature and have taken on greater value and meaning as the decades have wore on. And, and they've become these kind of generational and Anthems. Dad, after the session, was like, man, I wish Westerberg had just sent me, given me the one anthem, you know? It's like, man, there just wasn't a Bastards of Young or a Left of the Dial. But in retrospect, man, I feel like Please to Meet Me is full of anthems, you know? And what really brought that home was when they did the reunion tour and to hear thousands of kids singing along to so many songs from Please to Meet Me, I was like, man, you know, it's like you just couldn't see the forest for the trees because, man, these tunes are anthems, you know. Please to Meet Me is kind of that perfect combination of personalities, of Dickinson, of the engineers, of the session players, of place, of being at Arden and Memphis and the right environment and of songs, certainly in the batch of material that Paul had. And in terms of performance, I think this is the record where Paul had to step up Tommy had to step up, Chris had to step up, and they all did so in a way that really elevated not just 
the music, but I think elevated their own belief in what they were capable of. And I think it not only meant that the band was going to not break up as they had thought they might at the start of the sessions, but that they were going to go on and, you know, hopefully reach even greater heights. Please to meet me, the story of Please to meet me is really is a kind of transformative journey. And, and ultimately what you're left with is a classic album. We've uh, been sitting around so long, we're so dying to play that I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm losing sleep already. We're not going to be touring for, uh, we'll be touring in like, you know, April, May, and June. And I'm already starting to lose sleep about it. It's like the first tour again. It's going to be great. So you can't hardly wait. I can't hardly wait. No. God, how cute. <laughs> Visit lifeofthe-record.com for more information about the replacements. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase Please to Meet Me, including the recent deluxe edition. Thanks for listening.